listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. The best way to improve your health is to eat right, get the right amount of sleep, and to exercise regularly. If you do that, if you eat right, get enough sleep, and exercise regularly, you will have a greater chance of decreasing the instances of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and a multitude of physical ailments. See, physical ailments are often the result, clinical research is finding, of neglecting the body. The body tends to perpetuate itself one way or the other. Health begets health. An active lifestyle tends to increase the ability to be healthy as a human being, as a person. And who isn't interested in being healthy these days? You're interested in being healthy? Maybe you're listening by podcast and you're already getting convicted and saying, I need to get off the couch and get onto the treadmill. Get back to that gym. Hey, the new year's coming up soon. Time for a new year's resolution. But, you know, researchers are also finding that there are not just physical benefits, physiological, biological benefits to physical exercise. There are also mental advantages to exercise. A recent study at the University of British Columbia found that regular aerobic exercise actually increases the size of the hippocampus. Now, those of you who like Africa might call it the hippocampus, but it's the hippocampus, that part of the brain that's associated with verbal memory and learning. There was a key part of that study that I wanted to share with you, but I can't remember what it was. Regular aerobic exercise stimulates the hippocampus, that part of the brain that's associated with verbal memory and learning. Now, this is significant because there is now one instance of dementia around the world every four seconds. So by the year 2050, it's estimated that there will be about 115 million people walking this planet with some form of dementia. Now, physical exercise not only affects the body, but it affects the brain in a similar fashion Your ability to lift this, the Word of God, and to listen to the Word of God has a direct correlation to your faith. Your faith begets faith. Your ability to follow God and walk with God and honor God and enjoy God and do mighty things for God comes in direct proportion to your ability and your practice of lifting this, the timeless, matchless Word of God. Look with me at the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 17. A great passage of Scripture to commit to memory. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. If you want to build your faith, you have to be in the Word of God. The word of Christ, faith comes from hearing. Where does your faith come from? It comes from hearing the word of God, being in the word of God. The best way to avoid being a spiritual couch potato 
is to take out the Word of God to open it up, to read it for yourself, to hear the Word of God through personal reading of the Word of God, and to listen to the Word of God. Listen to what we're going to look at today. Listen to messages where the Word of God is preached. Of course, I'm partial to the messages that you get to hear on the God Factor app, hear from Grace Fellowship, and so much more that's there. But it doesn't have to be me. It has to be somebody preaching and teaching the Word of God. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. You will not be the man or the woman of God that you otherwise will be if you're not reading and hearing the Word of God. Lift this book. Open up the pages. Read it. Listen pay attention and you will find that your entire life will be transformed. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Your faith comes, my faith comes as a direct result of being in the word of God. And that's why we spend so much time in this book that is such a book that man wouldn't write if he could and couldn't write if he would. Now, if ever there was a time and an instance where you would appreciate that, it's going to be right here and right now. Let's look again at Genesis chapter 12. The book of Genesis chapter 12. We talked about this last time together, but it's so important and it's so vital that we're going to review. Maybe you're listening by podcast. Maybe you're here right now and you missed our last message. If it's good enough to hear once, it's good enough to hear a thousand times. Go back and listen to the last message. But let's review a little bit. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, never too old to continue to obey God. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go from, to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, your seed, I will give this land. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant first detailed here in Genesis chapter 12 is vital to understanding all of the Bible and all of life. The rest of the entire Bible is built upon the Abrahamic covenant where God promises personal blessing to Abram national blessing through Abram, that through him the Jewish people would come, the nation of Israel, and then also through him there would be global blessing, personal, national, and global blessing. We see that covenant reiterated again in Genesis chapter 15. Look with me at Genesis 15 verses 5 and 6. And he brought him, God brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. 
And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it, it, it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then in Genesis 22, verse 16, he said, God said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, this is when Abraham is offering up Isaac, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring and as stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring, singular, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. This is a reference again to Jesus Christ. The one who would come from the line of Abraham. That when people believe in Jesus Christ. Place their faith in Jesus Christ. They would have the faith of Abraham. And be part of that family. Spiritually speaking. By faith. Now look with me at the book of Galatians. Chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3. Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then in verse 29, Galatians 3, 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What promise? That so shall your offspring be. See, this is not a biological Relationship, this is spiritual DNA that the Bible is speaking about. Now, what is mind-blowing about what we've just read, which will give way to your faith getting a booster shot today. Your faith is going to be built up today. What is amazing is that the book of Genesis was written and compiled at least 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. 1,400 years earlier, nobody who wrote that book or compiled it was around when Jesus was born. The Apostle Paul interprets Genesis for us in the book of Galatians. Over 1,400 years later, he interprets it for us and helps us understand that Jesus Christ is the seed, the offspring that was promised to Abraham some six or seven hundred years before the book of Genesis was even written. See, those events happened about 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. They were recorded about six or seven hundred years after they happened. This is why we say the Bible is such a book that man couldn't write if he would and wouldn't write if he could. How convenient it would be. And I say this respectfully, but it's true. If one person wrote one book and said, this is from God, well, thank you very much. How do we know it's from God? It's your opinion. Joseph Smith, who wrote the Book of Mormon, you know, we were in a hotel a couple weeks ago down in Nashville. And I opened up the hotel dresser drawer, as I do, to see if something's in there. And thankfully, there it was provided by the Gideons, God bless them literally, 
the Holy Bible. And then next to it was the Book of Mormon. As if those two books are even comparable. See, Joseph Smith wrote that book, the Book of Mormon. Conveniently, there are no manuscripts from which he got that. Written by one man, supposed to be revelation from God. How do we know it's revelation from God? There is no comparison between the Book of Mormon and the way we got the Bible. And this is just one instance I'm giving you right here about the existence of the book of Genesis being written 1,400 years at least before the birth of Jesus Christ by one author, at least if you might not believe it was written by Moses, I believe that it was. Jesus said it was. New Testament says it was. But let's meet halfway. That at least Moses was the compiler, the chief editor, the publisher of the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was done 1,400 years or more before the birth of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul shows up on the scene and interprets this for us, the Abrahamic covenant in the book of Galatians, and helps us understand the significance of the personal blessing for Abraham, the national blessing, the biological children of Abraham, the nation of Israel, but more importantly, the seed, the offspring, the one who was promised so many years earlier, centuries earlier, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham and what we refer to as the Abrahamic covenant. Now that would be enough right there for us to appreciate that you can't make this stuff up. And that nothing in the Bible would be significant if only parts of it were fulfilled. All of it has to be fulfilled. And those parts of the Bible that are not yet fulfilled We can have faith and confidence that they will one day be fulfilled because of the track record thus far. The consistency of what's promised and predicted, prophesied in the Old Testament that was fulfilled in Jesus' first coming gives us hope and faith and assurance that those things that remain in regard to Jesus' second coming are also certain. The Bible is such a book that man wouldn't write if he could and couldn't write if he would. Now, if it was Paul referring To the book of Genesis, that would be sufficient. But now we turn to the book of Luke in chapter 2. Now we have another author. (laughs) I love it. We have another author at least 1,400 years after the book of Genesis and the Abrahamic covenant was written commenting for us about the identity of Jesus Christ. So now we have Luke and Paul. We also have Mark doing it. We have Matthew doing it. We have the Apostle John doing it in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the book of Revelation. We have James doing it in his book. We have the anonymous writer of the book of Hebrews. Nobody really knows who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we do know that the truth is so mind-blowing and so absolutely undebatable that the human author is really not important. See, don't get hung up on who wrote a book of the Bible humanly because it's not just a humanly inspired human humanly authored book. It is a book written by God. There is no book like the Bible 
all these authors supporting unified themes, not conversing with each other, didn't have access to an internet connection, didn't have websites where they could compare from Asia Minor to the United States or South America or Central America to compare their stories. We had different people in different parts of the world living at different times, writing the same truths, not knowing if what they were writing would be followed up by somebody else. You see, Moses did not know that a guy named Paul would be coming and writing the book of Galatians. Moses didn't know about the book of Acts that Luke would also be penning. Moses didn't know all these different authors. And I bet when these authors were children growing up, they didn't know that they'd be writing these books either. I dare you. I triple dog dare you. I skipped a step, didn't I? I dare you to find another book that even remotely resembles the way we got the Bible and authenticates itself and supports itself and interprets itself. There is no book like the Bible. It is such a book that man couldn't write if he would and wouldn't write if he could. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Here we're going to see how God works through human effort. God is working through the course of human affairs. That God is so humble that he actually works through the course of human affairs to accomplish his plan and his purpose. He needed to get Joseph and Mary into the town of Bethlehem so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And he used human natural means to accomplish that. Verse 2, this was the first registration or after the first registration, historically speaking, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. By the way, we don't even have time to go into all the nuances and all the teachings here in God's word. Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. And so from the house of bread came the bread of life. That's for another day, another time. That one's free. To the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Nudge. The Messiah comes from the line of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, 
Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. When you look at the Abrahamic covenant and how it's stated in Genesis chapter 12, repeated in Genesis chapter 15, stated again in Genesis chapter 17, and then stated again in Genesis chapter 22. You get the impression right out of the gate that God is being deliberate, he's being intentional. There's careful plotting on the part of God to make sure that this is unfolding exactly the way he intended it to unfold. Hundreds of years since before the beginning of time, the arrival of Jesus Christ was in the mind, the heart of Almighty God. And what we see in the book of Genesis is the historical account of how that was unfolding. Genesis 12, Genesis 22, the whole Bible is built upon the Abrahamic covenant, the entire Bible. Understand the Abrahamic covenant, you understand all of the Bible. Understand all of the Bible and you understand your place in this world. You understand world events in the right perspective. It's huge. You get the impression that God is making sure everything is happening precisely and exactly as he wants. In the book of Luke, we see that God is working through This census being taken to get Joseph and Mary into the town of Bethlehem, the house of bread, in fulfillment of the scriptures so that the Messiah would be born and fulfill the scriptures. So everything is laid out exactly the way it's supposed to be. And then look with me at Luke chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a golden... solid gold crib encrusted with jewels and diamonds in the most expensive inn available in Bethlehem. How fitting it would have been that at the right time in the right way to make the right statement in the fullness of time God would send the Messiah in fulfillment of the scriptures The way everything, precept upon precept, is unfolding in the word of God. Foundation block being built upon with another stone. Everything proceeding exactly according to plan. Angelic appearance after angelic appearance, not just any. Gabriel, the angel associated with end times events, appears to give this news to Zechariah, to appear to Mary. It's significant that God would send Gabriel, the angel affiliated with end times events, because God's end times agenda is being advanced here through the Christmas story. No, it's not about trees. It's about the greatest gift ever given in the most miraculous, unbelievable, such a book that you wouldn't write if you could, couldn't write if you would, way known to the human race. Your fuses should be blowing if you really understand how this thing is going down. I want to know the name of the angel who messed up the travel arrangements. 
Who was supposed to book the inn? I mean, you had since eternity past to know that this day and date was coming when God would become flesh and make his dwelling place among us. It's prophesied about in the book of Genesis, for Pete's sake, 2,000 years earlier. Or were these angels like you and me waiting till the last minute, scurrying around? I didn't plan on this census. I know that none of us are scurrying around for that last minute Christmas gift at this particular time of the year. I mean, for Pete's sake, we had 12 months to plan. We knew it was coming. We, we know it comes every 25th of December. I know that none of you are scrambling as I was, filling out Christmas cards earlier this week until finally you resolve that as long as it's post-stamped, December 24th or before, <laughs> it counts. There's no nuance or impression given even for a blink of an eye in all of Scripture that this was flippant happenstance coincidence about the arrival of Jesus Christ. I mean, go back to the book of Genesis and the curse where the serpent is said to strike the heel, but he, the Messiah, would crush the head. The promise of the Messiah is from the beginnings of Scripture. Even the idea of Adam and Eve covering themselves, sewing leaves together, and God saying, no, 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 no. The next thing we know, they're wearing animal skins. The implication is that there was a sacrifice made, unless there was some type of miraculous provision of animal skin, with no animal wearing that skin. There's a nod to the idea of what the Bible teaches without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. The ultimate shedding of blood given through Jesus. That's why we don't have animal sacrifices this day any longer. It would be going back, not going forward. Once the perfect has come, once the ultimate sacrifice has been given through Jesus Christ, how in the world could we go back to an animal sacrifice? But we see in the book of Genesis from the earliest times the promise of the Messiah. And here we come to the book of Luke in chapter 2 with all this fanfare, all this orchestration since before the beginning of time, multiple authors writing about this who didn't even know each other personally in many instances and most instances in the whole bible 66 books with dozens and dozens dozens of authors who didn't live during their same time period and this coherent theme this growing theme multiple themes how in the world does this book make sense because it is a book unlike any other book ever written all due respect to the quran No comparison whatsoever to this book, the Bible. Quite convenient to say that this book has been changed when we don't find instances of where that change has occurred. In fact, we would expect this book to be changed in many more ways if it were not for God himself protecting the words of this book. The fact that we don't see major changes in the Bible through all the multiple manuscript pieces and portions throughout centuries and centuries of time, there is no 
other book like this among all the books on this planet. Fact. And so we ask ourselves this question. What statement is God Almighty making by having the Messiah prophesied about so clearly, so intentionally, so purposefully, that all of history points to the coming of Jesus Christ? And all of current world events point forward to the return of Jesus Christ? What statement is God Almighty making through this book that he preserved and kept untainted and unstained by having Jesus come on to the scene in a manger because there's no room for him at the inn. Now Luke could have used the word for inn that was associated with a seedy type of a place, kind of a place where you would probably bring your own sheets and your own pillow, but he doesn't use that type of terminology because it seems like what Luke is trying to get across is not the idea of we want to get Jesus into a nice, comfortable place, we want to avoid that type of a seedy place. No, the word that he uses is just akin to a guest room. The implication here is that human beings were not ready for Jesus Christ. The arrival of Jesus was exactly the way God the Father intended it, exactly the way he wanted it, to make a particular statement. And we're reminded that the people that lived there in that day were completely caught off guard. In other words, this story wasn't fabricated. It wasn't made up. The way it unfolds helps us understand that it is God's story and not man's. A manger, a feeding trough of animals is the place where Jesus is laid. You and I would think bacteria-wise, that would not be the, the best place to put the Messiah. I mean, what if he catches a cold Contracts some type of a terminal illness. Talk about messing up the travel arrangements. You could mess it up in another way. Of all the places and all the ways that God from eternity past could have his one-of-a-kind, uniquely brought forth son come into the world, this is exactly the way it was intended. You see, the gospel is preached sometimes with words and sometimes without. Sometimes the best statement is made without making a statement at all. And here there's no need for words for God to say anything because he's doing it. For all to see. And it's God's silence verbally and his actions physically that spoke to the people in that day and speak to all people today. From the nation of Israel, the same nation that was given the opportunity and the charge by God to conquests and to invade space that did not belong to them but was given to them by God. 
They're now being taught a lesson about how from this point forward we are to behave, how we are to act, and the nature and character of the God they knew personally by name, but yet struggled to know him personally in salvation. Do you know anybody who knows about God in name, grew up in a religious home, went to church, goes to church, is basically a quote-unquote good person, but yet is missing that fundamental knowledge, that intimate knowledge of God, knowing him only as creator, but not as savior. It might be you. Might be you. You might be going into this Christmas season thinking only about gifts and trees, mistletoe. Especially if you're single, you think a lot about mistletoe. Actually, not the mistletoe itself, the stuff that supposedly happens underneath the mistletoe. But deep down inside, you know. You know that you know that you know that the true meaning of Christmas, the idea of God sending a Savior, is something that's been slipping through your fingers. It's been escaping you. It's time to settle that issue. To know God, not just with the head, but also with the heart. To know the reality of the removal of every single one of your sins. You see what's said here in Luke chapter 2, verse 8 and on is significant. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Now we know that Christmas is on the 25th of December and that Jesus wasn't necessarily literally born on the 25th of December. We know that. There are different theories as to why the 25th of December was chosen, and we're not going to go into that today. But if, in fact, it did happen in the wintertime in Jerusalem, the significance is that these shepherds out in the field would have been tending the lambs that in a few months would be given up during the Passover as sacrifices in the nation of Israel. Significant that God would be using shepherds. Who was a shepherd? But David was a shepherd. What's the role of a shepherd? The role of a shepherd is to care for the sheep. Why are pastors called shepherds in the Bible? Because our fundamental role and the fundamental role of a whole elder team and the deacons working together, the leadership of a church must be characterized as caring for the flock under their watch. That's why we're called shepherds. That's why a pastoral paradigm, a way of doing church ministry, must be characterized as shepherding. You know, also the shepherds were considered the dirtiest, filthiest, kind of like sailors today. Some of the words that would come out of a shepherd's mouth and probably still do in other parts of the world wouldn't be appropriate, of course, for saying in these four walls, and I wouldn't want to offend you if you're listening by podcast. What a statement God is making by appearing to the shepherds. They are among the first who get the ability, the outcasts and the foul-mouthed and the dirtiest of the dirties, the ones who would make Jesus ceremonially unclean if they touched him in the manger. In fact, being in a manger itself 
raises some ceremonially unclean issues here, humanly speaking. God making a statement that the outcasts, the dirty among us, are by no means outcasts, by no means relegated to the furthest rows. They have the front row to see God's grace unfolding right before them. And the same is true for you and for me. You might have a mouth, you might have a mind, you might have hands, you might have a history. Jesus knows how to work with history. Jesus knows how to make a bright future out of a dark past. And here in Luke's gospel in verse 9, chapter 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then verse 16, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And why is this significant? It's significant when we go back to the Apostle Paul and we read in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And we see how the Bible interprets itself. Scripture interprets Scripture and that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. We see that your faith is built up. My faith is built up even over these few minutes we've spent together in the word of God. To be able to come to this conclusion in Galatians chapter 4, 4 and 5, what do we read? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to buy back those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Don't get hung up on that maleness, the word sons there. This is God speaking within the culture of the day. To have a son was to be favored in the culture of the day. God is trying to, through the writer Paul, trying to help us understand the significance of value that you have, that I have, that everybody who has faith in Jesus has. The word to really be enamored with is the idea of being adopted, being brought into a family that you had no place being part of. That's what adoption is, and that's what God did with you. That's what God does with anybody and everybody. The moment they give their life to Christ, you become a member of a family you otherwise would be an outcast from. Spiritually, you're adopted. You become a descendant of Abraham, spiritually speaking. If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. One of those stars in the sky. Look what it says here in Galatians 4.4. 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. What is significant for us is not just that Jesus came, but how he came. The statement that Jesus makes, the statement that God the Father makes by sending his son at the right time, in the right way, for the right lesson is unmistakable for anybody who claims to be a follower of that God. 
You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.